Welcome to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for the week ending on Friday, June 12th, 2020. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer for the show. We appreciate you tuning in and taking us with you this weekend. Another really busy show this week. We've got the special session of the state legislature that is coming up next Thursday. So we're going to get you uh, ramped up for that and caught up with that so that you know what to look for there. We've also got this month's edition of Our Land, which is our environmental series, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future. And this week's show looks at two of those, our present and our future, which with the Rio Grande is a little scary at this point. You're going to hear part of the river has already gone dry for the summer, and we mentioned part of the river. We're talking about a stretch of about eight miles down near Socorro. So our land correspondent, Laura Paskus, will get you caught up on that story as well. But we lead off this week with Black Lives Matter. Again this week, uh, just like last week, we had a few more scatterings of protests this week, but a lot of conversation discussion about specific reform issues and measures around uh, police brutality, police reform, criminal justice reform. And some of that will even looks like be talked about during the special session next week. We hear some of that. We're joined on the line this week by regulars Dee Dee Feldman and Diane Snyder. Joining them is Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal, Mr. Dan Boyd. We appreciate him taking some time with us this week as well. But right now, let's head over to host Gene Grant and the line panelists for more on Black Lives Matter and impacts from the recent protests. George Floyd's funeral this week was not the end of the Black Lives Matter resurgence, but yet another chapter. It seems clear that the movement and the police reform debates it has engendered are here to stay, whether it's Minneapolis, Louisville, or Las Cruces, New Mexico. We'll get right to it with our line panel this week. We're happy to have the Albuquerque Journal's Capitol Bureau Chief Dan Boyd with us ahead of this special session. And two line regulars are back, former state, state former senators, Dee Dee Feldman and Diane Snyder. Sorry, guys. There's so much news, it's hard to follow it all. But is Dee Dee, let me start with you. Let me start with a really basic question. The Black Lives Matter message and movement, is it becoming clearer to the general public? Is it clear to you as a person? How do, how do you sense that the BLM movement is being received out there? It's been a, a surprising amount of support. Um, you think about what happened five years ago in Ferguson, there really wasn't a, a huge majority of bipartisan support that is evident in polls now and in also in the streets. I mean, there have been uh, not only huge demonstrations in Philadelphia, for example, and Chicago and Washington, but also uh, in small towns. And I think Albuquerque had five days of protest. And the amazing thing to me is this is young people. Um, but because I think of the, um, of the pandemic, uh, the usual suspects are not there. Uh, and it's young people, it's a different, more diverse crowd than we've seen in the past. And um, it's really heartening. And, you know, the speed at which it's been accepted is, is um, I think, similar to um, what happened with gay marriage uh, wow. in terms of this, this is a long time coming. 
Uh, both of them were a long time coming. And then when something happens, the kind of the dam burst and suddenly uh, there is a public, uh, public recognition and acknowledgement that this is a very valid issue. Isn't that interesting? You know, Dan, uh, when you really think about it, it might take a while for this all to play out, what Didi is mentioning, but we're, if we're talking about a little bit later about police reform and things like that, resistance is part of the game, isn't it? It's hard. You see huge institutions all the time. It's very difficult to turn big institutions around, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there is this energy, and I think that might be kind of a tipping point, but I think there are a lot of questions about what that looks like and systemic changes and how do you go about doing some of that. Um, you know, even, even the governor last week talked about kind of a paradigm shift and creating a new council and uh, racial justice, but then also the, uh, the director of the, the Office of African American Affairs resigned this week. So it's a, it can lead to some uncomfortable situations as well. And I think there, there's going to have to be some ongoing uh, pressure to really change some of these institutions and, and to really, and a lot of dialogue about how they want to be reshaped and, and look going forward. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, have the, you know, it's hard to get a bead on how effective the protests have been when you really think about it. The police had a tough go of it, obviously, just a few days ago, but there's been a lot of noise lately from some police chiefs and some governors and some mayors saying reform is coming and all that kind of thing. How do, how should we take, you know, is it, are they just using it as a protest to, as a diversion for vandalism and the police are responding? How's, what's your sense of it as you see it now on TV playing out? I think it's two things. One is certainly more people have gotten the message and understand this really is a serious situation we're talking about. It has been for many years, but, mm -hmm. but at least the attention has been gone there. Nobody could watch that video and, uh, and not just cringe and, and know that something, that this is wrong. It is a, even if you don't think about one being white and one being black, that was a human being that was being killed on TV. It was just something. But we've also had, and they've not received as much coverage, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but there have been a number of police officers that have been injured or killed, innocent people that have been. And the most people that I've talked to understand <laughs> a civil protest. Mm -hmm. That is part of what we are and have been from the very beginning of our country. But when when the other people move in and it becomes violence and disruption and burning of buildings and businesses, I mean, these poor people have just had to go through the COVID process of not having customers and here their whole life work is being burned up. So I think in that sense, the public is going well, wait a minute, we can't have both. We can't do that. So right. I think police are really struggling with where is their role? Where do they fit in and how far do they step forward? That's a good way to, I like that last bit of what you just said there. That's an interesting point. There, it is an internal conversation about what's appropriate and it's gonna be mm -hmm. a long conversation, there's no doubt. And Senator Feldman, you know, we've, I, I mentioned in Las Cruces, we have a situation where an officer has been fired and now faces manslaughter charges after using that neck restraint on somebody, and then, you know, he died, and he used the, he got caught on his own camera saying, I'm going to bleep, choke you out, bro, and the guy ended up dying. This neck, this knee restraint thing, that's got to go. It's just something about it that's just not working, is it? 
Yes, and I think that uh, it has been banned in some jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be banned statewide. Uh, I think what they call it is the vascular neck restraint. Uh, there are various definitions of it, but we know it when we see it, and it is police brutality. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that um, there have been a number of city councils and state legislatures. I think Hector Balderas here in New Mexico has uh, suggested a whole list of reforms. This is a unique situation because what the protests are about is the conduct of the police. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're about some distant war. It's about the conduct of the police and there are the police on the scene. And what I've noticed is that when the police show up in full um, military attire uh, with tanks on the streets of Washington, mm -hmm. uh, that's when the violence accelerates. When they send, stand down, when the curfews are lifted, when the, um, when the uh, confrontation is de-escalated, things begin to calm down. That's right. Um, Sorry about that. Let me interrupt. Let me get Senator Snyder on in here on this one. As we're talking about police reform here, the idea of defunding the police in quotes, how do you hear that? Because what I'm seeing is some folks feel that is like they mean literally defund the entire police force. The other side saying, no, wait a minute, that's not what we're saying. We're actually talking about reform here. How, when you hear that, how do you hear it? Uh, the first couple of times I heard it, I freaked out. I thought, yeah. how stupid can you be? I, I do think they could have found a better phrase, but uh, because then I, as I read more and realized they're just talking about reallocating certain funds for other things. Well, there's a part of me that, particularly for youth kinds of things, I, that's the one that, that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. However, what I would like to see is continued support for our police. Ours in New Mexico don't have the, all the equipment they need. We, back when I was in the legislature, I was giving cameras to firefighters and, and, and helping fund cop cars for Albuquerque uh, and, and other places in the state. So instead of taking the funds away, let's commit to this seriously and come up with more funds. We all know that our, our, our mental health programs need more funding, but let's not take from our law enforcement to fund our mental health, because mm -hmm. that's just an excuse. Dan Boyd, pick up on that if you would. You know, the, the, the details are yet to come if there are details to come, but the idea of slicing off a portion of a police department's budget and using it for social issues, how do you politically, seems to have a little bit of traction right now. It does, and, and I don't know if that's something that New Mexico is ready to commit to at this point. Um, the governor said during a call with reporters yesterday that that's not something that's in the mix for the special session, talking about uh, defunding state police or things like that. Um, I do think, and I wanted to add, I, I think you know, the whole question of the, the body cameras is really important in all this too. And, yeah. and even in this era of cell phones, I think if it wasn't for the, the videos of George Floyd, you know, that that case probably wouldn't have gotten the traction. And uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of these things have been happening for years, but now you know, it, it's, it's harder to avoid it. You know, it, it's there in front of you and, and people are having to confront it. Yeah. Well. Even we got about a minute left. Go ahead, please. Well, having those uh, body cams costs money, you know, and so um, that uh, that is a, a legitimate expense. Um, but I think that the uh, 
the whole idea of um, restructuring the police force is a question of revisioning um, what their real role is. Right. Are they actually um, um, warriors or are they guardians uh, as the uh, Obama task force on police brutality uh, said? And I think that they should be guardians. We should come up with a new model of community policing. We've already uh, spent a lot of money on community services. Uh, as Diane was saying, youth services and the mayor certainly has been trying to get more funding into the police. It's now 33% of the city's budget. Wow. Um, I'm, gonna, so, I'm, gonna to, I'm gonna have to wrap you there. My fault, uh, just a time issue, not a, not a content yeah. issue, my, my fault there. Uh, we might well hear more about it next week in the special session, actually. That's our topic when the line returns in a few minutes. Gonna jump now to COVID-19 coverage and we continue with the series we started early on during the pandemic, that is checking in with journalists around the state, around the region, to see how COVID-19 is impacting various communities. And this uh, week, we're gonna head south of the border for a conversation about COVID-19 in the country of Mexico. Got a real treat for you, I hope you enjoy this, but it should be a familiar name for those of you who have followed the show for a while. David Alire Garcia, he was a former co-host of New Mexico in Focus with Gene Grant. That was in the late 2000s. And for the last few years, he has been a Reuters correspondent based in Mexico City. He spent a few minutes with us this week talking to correspondent Laura Paskus about the spread of the disease in our neighbor to the south, as well as its impacts economically, which as you'll hear, are in a lot of ways really tied to our economy here in Mexico. A lot of exports from Mexico uh, come here to the United States and New Mexico. Their economy is heavily dependent on several industries, one of which is oil and gas. So there's a lot of parallels and a lot of interconnectedness between our two countries. Here now is Laura Pascas and David O'Leary Garcia. David, welcome back to New Mexico in Focus. It is so great to have you today. Um, can we just start off, can you give us a quick overview of COVID-19 cases and deaths in Mexico at this point in time? Sure, and it's great to be back. Uh, Mexico has been hard hit, Laura, by uh, coronavirus, by the, the respiratory disease. As of earlier this week, uh, the government confirmed more than 120,000 cases, a, a total of 120,000 cases, and more than 14,000 deaths uh, to date. Now, those numbers likely undercount the, the true nature of the impact. There are models that suggest those numbers are, are several times higher. And, and there's been little testing here, uh, very little testing compared to many countries in the region, compared to the US. So, so we don't really know the true impact but there's indirect measures, uh, you know, funeral homes uh, are, ha have experienced a big uh, you know, growth in, in, in the bodies that, that they've been dealing with. One recent uh, estimate said that excess mor mortality here in Mexico City, where I'm at, is something like 14,000 deaths higher than in previous years at this point in the year, which gives you an idea that that the true numbers are, are probably dramatically higher than what the government has said. 
And how has the Mexican government responded to the spread of the virus? Early on, the, the Mexican president, uh, new president as of, as of 2018, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he very much downplayed the, the risk of this disease, this virus. You know, he uploaded videos encouraging people, even in early March, mid-March really, to go out with their family to restaurants, to keep hugging people. Mexico is, I'm sure you guys know, and most viewers know, is, is a country of abrazos, and it's very, you know, warm uh, type of, you know, touchy-feely country. Uh, that changed kind of in the end of March when the government did institute these social distancing guidelines. Many local governments uh, closed down big parts of the economy, factories, the auto sector, which is very important here in Mexico. Other things just sort of collapsed on their own weight. The tourism sector, which is very important here to Mexico, just dried up almost completely. So there were measures taken. There were never any curfews or, or sort of uh, required uh, wearing of masks. Many local governments did institute those sorts of things, uh, masks, not, not really curfews. And, you know, all kinds of sort of uh, social distancing related measures. Uh, it's been a, it's been a, you know, a, a kind of a, you know, a, a mix of, of responses. Like the United States, Mexico has states and, and local governments that basically chart their own course. And some have been more aggressive than others. Uh, as of the beginning of June, the government ordered a, a, a gradual opening of the economy. Um, you see traffic uh, back up to kind of where it was before and some key industries that were deemed essential, uh, like car making, uh, mining, construction, were allowed to, to get back uh, going, provided they, they adhere to certain safety standards, temperature checks, masks, limiting the number of people, for example, at different work sites. But still, much of the country is shut down. You mentioned traffic. What um, what else do you see? How are people responding? Are people wearing masks? Are people in restaurants and in churches and public spaces? No, you don't see big gatherings yet. Um, you know, just last week, the president, who loves to get out of Mexico City and travel the country, he uh, did his first new kind of tour. He went to a couple spots in the southern part of the country, but he limited his you know, normally big rallies to very small numbers of people. In most states, certainly in the capital, restaurants only have to go service. Uh, but, you know, the thing that's also interesting, there's big parts of the country where there was never really a shutdown to begin with. You have big markets, for example, you know, that, that remained open throughout. Here in Mexico City, there's a big uh, mostly food market, uh, Central de Abastos, it's called, in the East Tapalapa neighborhood, kind of a working class neighborhood in the southeast part of the city. Th this market never really shut down. It, it's massive. It covers 14 football fields. You know, some estimates say half a million people go there every day. And you see masks for sure, uh, but it's kind of impossible to, to keep people apart because it's kind of close quarters there. And that's been the case in a lot of parts of of Mexico, especially informal economy markets where, you know, people need to work and there aren't generous, uh, you know, programs. There certainly wasn't any kind of, you know, direct checks like in the U.S. that were given here to encourage people to stay home and stay 
away from these kinds of workplaces. So, you know, it remains to be seen what the effect will be of, of you know, big parts of the country where there wasn't a shutdown to begin with. When President Trump, we've heard a lot of rhetoric from the president concerning the World Health Organization and threats to defund the WHO. Can you talk a little bit about what, what impacts that has on Mexico and, as you've reported, impacts throughout the Americas? I uh, actually did a story a, a week or so ago that the America's director of the World Health Organization uh, very much was pleading you know, with everyone, but particularly the U.S., to not end this funding, which is used all over the region, all kinds of great public health programs uh, that have nothing to do with politics and that you know, are precisely designed to deal with, with something like this that comes along, along with many other lesser uh, diseases that are a problem in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America. I think that's a concern. You, you don't see the government uh, criticizing uh, Trump on that or really on anything, as, as maybe many viewers have, have seen. The Mexican president has uh, gone out of his way to be respectful to not escalate any kind of war words with with the U.S. president. And that's kind of obvious. Mexico's economy is so tied to the United States. Something like 80 percent of exports from Mexico go to the U.S. So, you know, if, if Trump or 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 the or anyone in the U.S. government threatens that kind of trade flow, you know, Mexico is really uh, has a lot to lose. And so you haven't seen much criticism. If anything, you see you know, the, the Mexican authorities wanting to coordinate, uh, you know, from immigration issues, uh, you know, to economic issues, the, the opening, the reopening of the auto sector, which is re, really integrated with, with the United States, with Canada. That's more like the, the efforts you see from the Mexican government. So you've also, you reported in May about the um, Mexican beef industry bumping up its exports to the United States. That's kind of the industry here in the United States was um, struggling. Is that continuing to happen? And how has the agricultural sector in Mexico survived over the past few months? For the most part, the agricultural sector here in Mexico, ranching sector, ha has done uh, well. It, it, it hasn't been as affected. I, I think, as you point out, the, the story about the, the, the beef industry, uh, Mexico has a booming uh, livestock industry, not just beef, pork, chicken. And again, there's this very integrated trade with the United States. Uh, curiously, as big meat packing plants, processing plants in the United States had a whole lot of problems with, with big outbreaks, of course, you know, mostly immigrant labor in these places. That did not happen here in Mexico. It hasn't happened yet. And this industry continues to grow. It continues to, to sell a lot of products to, to, to the United States. Like New Mexico, Mexico is heavily dependent on the oil sector, um, which is state-run in Mexico. How did the kind of crash in prices affect um, sort of the Mexican economy, but also people's individual lives? It's been a double whammy for sure, Laura. Uh, as, as you say, you know, Mexico is really similar to New Mexico in the sense, you know, for a long time, maybe about a third of tax revenue uh, you know, for New Mexico and for Mexico comes from this one industry. So it's a big, uh, you know, employer. It is dominated here in Mexico by a national oil company, Pemex. Uh, the main impact I'd say is, is A, the government has had to deal with 
fewer revenues. You know, when oil prices drop, I don't need to tell anyone in New Mexico this. Uh, it hurts, you know, government revenue and government leaders, lawmakers, you know, the governor, in this case, the, the president and the Congress have to figure out how they either cut spending or borrow to make up the shortfall. Here in Mexico, the president, even though he comes from the, the left uh, in Mexico, very different from, from the left, the progressive left in the United States, his uh, approach has been austerity, uh, not to uh, spend more money, not on relief for people who've been affected by coronavirus or businesses. He's very much avoided that. Uh, instead, he's practiced uh, you know, belt tightening uh, across the government. The, the one exception, uh, or one of the main exceptions has been Pemex, which is, uh, has its budget approved by the government. Uh, that has gone up, and that's part of his agenda beyond uh, coronavirus. He, he's long favored a, a growing uh, oil industry here in Mexico, sees it as tantamount to helping develop the country. And just uh, one last question. I think it's very fair to say that things feel unstable here in the United States right now. Is there that same sense of instability in Mexico right now? And also, how does this sort of U.S. instability affect our neighbor to the South? You know, I think here in Mexico, it's a mixed bag. I think a lot of people, you know, who know someone, a family member, friend, coworker who's been affected, there's certainly that anxiety. Um, you see a lot of people on the streets who definitely wear masks, who practice social distancing. Um, you know, I think there there is a segment, maybe like in the U.S., of folks who are a bit in denial, um, you know, aren't so worried about it, and are more worried about the damage that an economic slowdown, recession can cause on people's livelihoods. Mexico you know, is a country where about half of the people are in poverty, and many of, of, of those folks work in the informal economy. Uh, there aren't government protections like in the U.S., unemployment benefits or, or you know, the cash payments that, that were authorized by Congress a while back. That doesn't happen here. So I think more of the anxiety, you know, when you talk about, you know, the bulk of the population is probably about the economy and about, you know, their own job situation. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us from Mexico City. It's really great to have you on the show this week. Matt, thank you very much. It's been great to talk with you, Laura. All right, back to the line now. We talked about it earlier, but next week, starting on Thursday, is the special session of the New Mexico legislature as they look to hug a, to plug a huge budget hole caused by COVID-19 and the downturn in the oil and gas industry. Some predictions are that uh, for the next fiscal year, which starts on July 1st, we could be in the hole as much as $2 billion or close to so oh, the special session will be just the beginning of the start to rein in spending and look at how to adjust the budgets appropriately. We will be covering the special session next week on the show, and we encourage you to follow us on all the various social media platforms where we are located. That includes Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We'll have updates for you there, and especially keep an eye out on Facebook. We're going to try to take some of the live streaming that the legislature does and pass it through to Facebook so that it's a little more accessible. And if you are interested in keeping track of everything that is decided there, 
you can follow along there. So look out for that. Right now, we want to get back to the line panel and hear their thoughts on what's going to happen during the special session, how they're going to tackle this truly troublesome budget picture. The stunning sweep of COVID-19 is evident in the financial picture that spreads out before <laughs> lawmakers as they are set to return to the Capitol next Thursday. Dan Boyd, that picture isn't pretty. What did you learn this week about how much less money uh, the state will have to spend? Yeah, it, it's pretty uh, shocking. You know, a few months ago, we were in a budget surplus and talking about expanding programs. And uh, now, you know, for the, the coming fiscal year, the state's looking at about $2 billion less revenue than, than had been projected. So that's going to require um, some creative solutions. Um, luckily, the state does have a lot of cash reserves that they're going to be able to use, at least plug some of that budget hole. But they're hoping to be able to use some federal funding, but it's still going to require some budget reductions and, and maybe uh, paring back some pay raises and things like that that could have real uh, consequences for New Mexicans. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, uh, and I'm going to refer to Dan's writing in the, in the journal. He did a, a terrific piece on Wednesday about this uh, yesterday as we sit and tape this. The idea that the governor and the LLC are not that far apart. Were you sh surprised by that? Because everyone was sort of waiting for a bit of a collision there. I, I really was. I thought that was, uh, I mean, closest percentage wise I've ever seen them be together. And I think they have an opportunity to have less controversy. Now, I don't know how much work's been done behind the scenes and how many meetings, Zoom meetings have taken place to get to this point. But I think it's, I think for some reason, everybody understands this is serious. The, the concern I have is what are we going to use that federal money for? Because we're not going to have that in the future. So we ha they have to be wise about where they allocate that money for what uses. I mean, if they use it for immediate short-term expenses or programs like helping small businesses, that is sort of a short-term kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But if you put it into education, that's long-term. And so what happens then a year from now? So, uh, and I hope that they truly look at whatever they do to understand that they're still going into uh, next year, into 2021, with a short budget. Right. I mean, oil and gas is not coming back that quickly. It's right. doing some, but they, so whatever the decisions they make, I hope they're looking at a big picture of this. Good point. Senator Feldman, pick up on that. There's a lot to chew on there. You know, the idea that, I'll throw another one in there. The idea that raises that were highly anticipated because they just we haven't seen raises around here in a decade, literally, might be cut in half or even eliminated in in, in essence. What's what's your sense of how you see this shaping up for next week? Well, I think it's a whole new world. I mean, it's with uh, COVID nineteen, it's a whole new world. I mean, the schools were not even in session. Uh, for the past two months. Mm -hmm. So um, cutting the salaries of, well, it's not a cut. It's not, it's not increasing the salaries as much as expected. Um, I think may not have as big an impact as if, you know, it was, it was, you know, the daily grind. Uh, we're in a new, we're in a new world here. And I th do think that people, some people are willing to make sacrifices. And I think that is the reason why um, the executive budget and the LFC budget are not that different. Mm 
Mm -hmm. uh, because the urgency of the matter is recognized widely. And um, I think um, I think there will be um, more agreement than you think. And of course, a special session is really, for me, it's like the leadership, the finance committees and the governors meet and they decide what it is. The rank and file, when the rank and file gets involved, that's where you get the debate. That's where you get the, um, the red herrings or sometimes the great new ideas. Um, but um, in this case, there won't be, this is to be a short session mm -hmm. as, as the special sessions are, are usually very short. Uh, so we can expect, I think the decisions to largely have been made uh, by the time it's presented um, on opening day or the day after opening day, if it, if it lasts more than one or two days. Um, mm -hmm. I, I hear you. Dan Boyd, you know, interestingly, I, I was looking down. I apologize for looking like I was being rude there, but I was sort of scanning your piece from yesterday again. It, it just strikes me as interesting how, even on the education stuff, let's sort of go there, hone in on that. It was the 300 million, of course, or just over that, that was earmarked for, for uh, early education stuff. It hasn't really taken that much of a ding. It, are, does it seem safe to you going into next Thursday, some of the education stuff? I think there's a desire to, to protect education as much as possible, um, right. especially given the, the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit and things like that. I do think, like Diane mentioned, that some of this may be just kind of putting off even harder decisions until next year. Right. Um, you know, because it doesn't look like revenues are going to rebound that quickly. So um, so I think there may even have to be some harder um, decisions come January. But I think, you know, the goal right now for a lot of uh, legislators is to try to get this taken care of as quickly as possible, especially in this COVID world that we're in and kind of get in, take care of the budget, do what's necessary to get to January and then kind of uh, get out of there. Although, you know, there's always uh, every special session takes on a life of its own and uh, other issues could come up as well. Mm -hmm. Ah, you just, I love the way you just said other issues could come up as well. It's just going there. Senator Snyder, I mean, it's going to be hard to avoid things like police reform and COVID-19 response. I mean, it's going to be almost impossible when you think about lawmakers to not get their cuts in on that kind of a thing. Is it an appropriate time to do that? Or if we don't, is that an opportunity missed given the times we're, we're in right now? It would certainly be an opportunity missed because one of the things that, referencing back to what I said earlier, is the federal monies. Uh, I, I was listening to the speaker's um, uh, town hall the mm -hmm. other uh, Wednesday. Speaking and he, he said that one of his top priorities was the health of small business. Well, that seems like to me, he immediately said that's a logical place if, if, if federally it's possible to put some of the federal money and not put it into recurring expenses to, to help our small business. Because the point that was made is if the businesses are back doing business, they're paying gross receipts tax, they're, uh, the, the employees, uh, they're also paying um, employee tax, but employees are out going out and buying things and paying taxes as well. So it's helping the revenue offset, particularly gross receipts tax has, has taken a major hit by not having businesses going. And we have so many small businesses in New Mexico right. and they've kind of taken a hit through all of this. And, and I have friends that have a, 
Yep, let, me, let me swing Dan back into that very thought. Dan, sure. there is money for small businesses, isn't there? That's interesting. Yeah, there, there's talk about that. And there's talk even using one of the state's permanent funds for, um, I, I don't know all the details yet, but for giving some kind of relief to small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have to be a little tricky. You can't just give money to businesses. It has to be um, due to the state constitution, be creative with that. Um, but I think there is appetite to do that, you know, bipartisan appetite. Um, we'll see, you know, always the devil's in the details. Um, and, um, you know, and I think, yeah, go ahead. Representative Matthews is one going to be carrying that bill and has been talking about it. And she said how you not get around, but how you meet the, the requirements of the anti-donation clause is you make it a loan instead of a grant. And if it is a loan and the state is getting back interest and getting something in return, you can do it. I'm not a constitutional scholar or or attorney, so I'm not sure about that. But at least they're thinking in terms of instead of just taking money from the severance fund and giving it away, they're thinking about ahead for the future. So that is one of the things I've heard talked about. Gotcha. Senator Feldman, got about a minute left here. We can't get out of here without talking about John Arthur Smith. This would be his final session leading the Senate Finance Committee. What do you expect from John Arthur Smith this time around? I think John Arthur Smith will be dignified. He has been dignified in defeat. He will not be like some other lame ducks in the Senate who have become complete contrarians and uh, have uh, caused a lot of uh, discord and trouble. Uh, within the Senate on the floor. And of course, this is different because there, who knows whether there will actually be floor sessions. Um, But I expect him to just carry on as usual. And uh, he will be, the the special session I predict will become a salute to John Arthur Smith Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, his uh, uh, prescience in insisting on uh, reserves, a uh, high level of reserves mm-hmm. uh, that are really uh, saving the day here, as it turns out, uh, at this unprecedented uh, time of uh, confluence of, of a disease and an oil and gas Absolutely. bust. Absolutely. Hey, guys, we're out of time with the panel. We appreciate your time this week. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. And we look forward to catching up with everybody after the special session. It is the second Friday of the month. That means it is time for Our Land, a monthly segment on New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future. This means that Laura Pascas, our correspondent, is back headed your way. And uh, wish it was better news, but a story that we definitely need everyone to know about. Uh, despite really about average runoff this year from the snowpack, it has not stopped good stretch of the Rio Grande from drying up already this summer. We're talking around eight miles down near Socorro, the San Antonio um, exit in that area, if you know that area, just south of um, Socorro. She and our photographer, Kevin Maestas, headed down to see exactly what it looked like down there. And of course, one of the biggest impacts of it is on the fish population. Um, There's some pretty amazing imagery in this episode if you're able to go online and and watch of fish that are struggling as the water dries up right around them and that's especially troublesome when you think about the silvery minnow and other endangered fish species that um, conservationists are working to protect along the Rio Grande 
So here now is Laura Paskus and our land. We had close to average snowpack in the mountains, but the Rio Grande still ran low this spring and has already dried south of Socorro. Are these conditions expected to last throughout the summer? Yeah, unless the monsoons kick in kind of early, which we did see some of that last night, um, it's gonna continue to be uh, intermittent in the Santa Costa reach probably for 20 to maybe even up to 40 miles, depending on how dry it gets down there. Uh, I just talked to one of the hydrologists at Reclamation this morning, and they, they have supplemental water for, for the minnow that they're gonna release at Islana, and that'll prevent uh, large sections of Islana from drying probably through September. But if we don't get any, any rain, it's, we'll probably see a lot more drying in Islana. Um, as of right now, I'd say there's probably only gonna be five to seven miles of Islana, but that could expand to 20 miles if, if water just runs out. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service enforces the Endangered Species Act, and specifically you work on protecting the endangered silvery minnow. How does this river drying in the summers affect the fish's population? Uh, it's kind of entangled with the spring runoff. So you, when you have these years of high spring runoff, like 2017 and 2019, you end up with a lot of um, young, we call them young of year fish. It's the fish that were spawned in that year. So you end up with a lot of those fish. And then when you go into a year like 2018 or 2020, um, the drying is starting to occur before they've even spawned. So it's, it's, you're really preventing any of these fish from successfully reproducing. And then the heat and the drying is just so extensive that you're also kind of, you're, you're impacting the survival of the adults as well. So you end up, you know, one of the reasons that we didn't see as many fish as you might've expected in 2019 is because the drying was so bad in 2018. Not only did you, fail to really produce any new fish that year, you also killed off what was already there. So you go into 2019 with fewer fish than you might expect normally. So when the river does dry in the spring or summer, the Fish and Wildlife Service typically heads out there. What do you usually do and what happen, what's happening this year? I, in most years, what we'll do is, is there's a lot more consistency with the, it begins to dry in June. And we have our staff in place and we'll go out and each day that there's a new section of river that dries, we'll visit every single pool that forms and try to remove as many of the silvery minnows as possible. And then we move them up or downstream to somewhere that we are pretty sure is gonna have perennial flows for the rest of the year. Um, and a year, and this year is different because of the COVID-19 and we've been having to ask to get permission from our regional office, get permission from them to go out and do any sort of field work. And we had to kind of take a guess on when we thought we'd be able to get out. So we'd asked for June 8th, which is actually a week before our contract has even started for um, actual rescue. So we gave them a bonus week and that's the best that we could work out just because the scheduling was so bad and having to ask for permission and we're all going to be driving separate vehicles. So it's, it's, um, we're gonna head out next Monday and it's gonna be kind of an interesting test to see how well it goes.
So what does this mean and what do these worsening conditions as the region continues to warm and dry, what does this mean for the fish's population looking into the future, do you think? Uh, you know, that's a good, that's a really good question. I think this is kind of a worldwide question on what these prolonged droughts are doing to fish populations. Um, you know, historically when it was in more, when it was in the entire Rio Grande and the Pecos, maybe this wouldn't have been as big of a deal because it probably would not have affected the entire population all at once. You may have had fish in the Pecos that were still okay. Fish that were upstream of Cochiti, fish that were downstream of Elephant Butte, it, it may have actually been okay for a year or two. And now you've kind of constricted them to one 300 kilometer section that 40 to 50% of it is highly prone to drying. So I don't think anybody really knows. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's gonna be harder and harder to recover the, the species if we're seeing these kinds of swings where we're going from two of the best runoff years you know, back to back with two of the worst runoff years in the, in the last 20 or 30 years. It's gonna be very difficult to make any forward progress when you're constantly knocking the population back every other year. I think it's probably fair to say that the silvery minnow is a proxy for the health of the river itself. And like you mentioned, the fish used to have habitat throughout the Rio Grande and the Pecos River, and now it's within a few hundred miles and these miles um, consistently seem to dry in the summers. Um, what does it say about the Rio Grande and the choices that we've made on how we use its waters if the river can't even sustain a two or three inch long fish? Uh, you know, I think it just really shows how much we've changed the river over the last, you know, e even pre uh, pre-settlement by, by Anglos, it's changed quite a bit. You know, the, the natives did some work, but they obviously couldn't do it on the scale that, that we have done with um, holding back sediment in Cochiti, which, you know, that Cochiti was there for flood control um, because we wanted to build close to the river and we've straightened the channel. So it, it's really, it's almost hard to imagine what it might have looked like 400 years ago. And overcoming some of those changes is going to be really tough. You know, I, it's, you know, you want to try to think that there's some positive in there, and, and there is. The fish is quite resilient and will come back from low numbers, but it's going to be a constant cycle of high and low if we don't figure out some way to have, a, have some sort of management action that's going to get rid of those really low years like 2018 and 2020. So you've been working on this species and, and this um, stretch of the river for quite a few years now. I'm wondering for you, coming back to these challenges year after year, um, and, and frankly, seeing the dry riverbed um, year after year, how does that affect you and the work that, that you're trying to do? Uh, you know, that's a good question. There's kind of two sides to it. There's directly what you're saying, like seeing this happen year after year and not really seeing a whole lot of forward progress is definitely frustrating. And, and you know, especially since I probably see it more than just about anyone else. There, there's some agencies out there that are doing other work that see it as often as I do. Um, not really, you know, going to these meetings and, and I don't think anybody really recognizes the situation about how bad it really is and what's really going on out there. So it, it is frustrating and kind of depressing. But on, on the flip side, it's also, you know, I, I got into this field because of the science aspect of it. And 
we've been able to develop a really good relationship with the Bureau of Reclamation and assisting them in meeting their compliance with biological opinion. And we've been able to do a lot of really interesting stuff that I think we would have only accomplished by working as a, as a group and finding other experts to help us out. So it's, it's on the one hand, yeah, it's very depressing to go out there and watch this happen year after year and not really see any forward progress. You, you know, you look at 2019, one of the highest spring runoffs on record and the river's still dry in September. So that should tell you something right there that if we can have one of the greatest snowpacks of the 21st century and we still dry the river in September, that something is not, something needs to change there. And on the flip side, being able to do a lot of this research has been really kind of fulfilling for my career. Well, Thomas Archdeacon, thank you so much. And when you guys make it out there, be safe. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. This week with some uplifting news uh, that is tied to the COVID-19 outbreak as well. We're talking about health and wellness, how folks are inspiring other people to find creative ways to exercise, to eat well, to take care of their mental, physical health. And specifically, we're talking about uh, some of the inspiring messaging and inspiring uh, initiatives that we see in uh, Native American country. Correspondent Antonia Gonzalez talks to a group of folks who have made that their mission, not only their own personal health and wellness, but also their brothers and sisters and family members and friends. Uh, and that's one of the great things about technology today is we have creative ways to get out and inspire other folks. And uh, we want to end with that this week. Uh, hopefully it gives you some inspiration, some motivation as well to get outside this weekend, to move around a little bit, to enjoy Mother Nature but of course, do it safely and responsibly. Here now, Antonia Gonzalez. Justin, Lauren, and Christina, thank you for joining us this week virtually on New Mexico in Focus. Thank Glad you. to be here. Justin, you work with the Notabigay Third Foundation, um, which addresses childhood obesity and diabetes. What are some of the ways you and your staff have been able to address fitness uh, during COVID-19 stay-at-home orders? Yeah, well, like everyone else, we've definitely struggled with uh, working remotely and keeping up with a lot of our commitments, both to our health fitness agenda. And so we've been fortunate. We have a health and wellness committee that really has taken the lead as a staff. These are staff members. Um, the majority of my staff live in the different pueblos around the area, and so it's been interesting to see the team uh, come together weekly, literally, uh, to host healthy activities, uh, which could all include physical activity, but also sort of mental reflection periods, lots of writing, uh, just uh, efforts to keep the mind clear. Uh, we've done some virtual workouts. So I really got to hand it to my staff who really stepped up through the Health and Wellness Committee and have done some really fun activities, uh, all from our living room or bedroom. But at the end of the day, even though it sounded kind of hokey uh, as a team, uh, the, the, the staff bought in. And at the end, I think they're going to miss it. We're, we're, we did our last one this past Friday. So we'll see if we continue something like that. Can you expand on what some of those um, online exercises were 
and where are those still up for the public? If yeah, they so, so uh, staff uh, took the responsibility, maybe it was one staff that said, okay, this week we're gonna do, you know, could be stretching. And so they did their homework, they led the session. One might say, well, today we're gonna do really reflection writing. And so they walked us through a process or uh, others might've done a little more rigorous activities. So now you're doing jumping jacks and that's more high intensity aerobics. And so you never knew uh, when it was, so we did a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, usually at 8.30 a.m. And uh, you know, the staff would step up and you didn't know, they would say, well, all you need right now is your tennis shoes or all you need is a pen and a paper. So um, it, it varied every, every session and was led by staff who, um, one was actually a, uh, you had, it was a scavenger hunt in your house. And so it was time. And so you had to run around really fast and figure, find things in your house and come back. So whatever, whatever it took to get the body moving, whatever it took to sort of clear your mind, those kinds of activities. So we had a whole host of, of, of those. And Christina, you did um, some online activities. Well, you pretty much danced your way through COVID-19 stay at home orders. What was that like? It was awesome. Um, early on, I kind of fell off of my workout regimen because I'm a fitness instructor. I teach mixed fit and Zumba, you know, and usually I'd be in the studio doing my classes. And so once COVID started and we were all quarantining and trying to figure out everything or what was going to happen, I kind of fell off for a good two weeks. And then I was like, whoa, I'm going to try to raise some money for the communities that, you know, um, I um, am extended rela related into. Um, so then I decided, wow, you know, I don't really have any pressing needs. I, I, all my bills are paid and I'm making money, thankfully. So I'm going to start uh, dancing for the people was my campaign. And for like two weeks, I did classes like almost like every other day and uh, raised a good amount of money for uh, some of the Pueblos. And, um, uh, and then I threw out my back. <laughs> so too much, too much. That's, you know, like that's a good lesson on like overextending oneself. And so now I'm hiking and I'm starting a women's hiking club in Santa Fe. And that's, that's what I'm doing. That's my next endeavor is to get other folks and, you know, in a so safe, socially distanced type setting, we're going to start hiking as of this Sunday. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. And uh, Lauren, you're known for your acting and also helping youth and elders in the community and the Gallup and surrounding areas. Um, but you also like to keep a healthy lifestyle and you're known for that. Um, tell us a little bit about the unconventional ways you've stayed fit during stay-at-home orders. I really had to get in touch with the old Lauren from back when I first started the whole fitness journey. For people that are unaware of my fitness journey, you know, I, I stepped out of the rock and roll touring life which involved, you know, drugs, alcohol, a lot of negative habits. Once I quit um, getting sober and whatnot, I started, I gained a lot of weight. I almost hit 300 pounds, and that's what a lot of people don't realize at this point. And I found my spirituality through the gym. I found um, health and wellness through, you know, health and fitness as, as in, in general. So I started this uh, program called um, Iron Warriors, and it was just a big community workout. And it was all of us just keeping each other on point. So that kind of um, faded out over the years, but um, we still do it. It's kind of a smaller group before the COVID-19. But during a year ago, um, back in March, I got injured on set. Um, 
there was an injury with a horse and whatnot. So it was a long story, but the, the main thing, the outcome of that was I ended up giving um, nerve damage. Um, I got um, partial paralysis to my left side of my body. So now I have these new challenges of becoming this um, uh, head injury trauma uh, person and uh, also advocate and also like trying to reestablish myself and trying to figure out how to lift weights again. So I had this long year journey almost before COVID-19 trying to really um, build myself back up in the gym. So people had followed me through that story. So when this whole COVID-19 hit, it really hurt because it was a, it was an emotional impact for me because I had goals by April for my birthday to, to be able to hit 405 again. Uh, that's baby weight to me, but that to, to, uh, to other people as well, but like heavy hitters, but for, for myself, like I knew mentally I could do it, but physically it took a long time to get to that point again, to start all over. So starting all over with this COVID-19 was the exact same thing too. Getting back to the basics, doing body weight, doing hit cardio, doing hit training intervals and finding re things that you have in your backyard. So I started deadlifting, um, railroad ties, doing tire flips in the back, finding digging bars and putting things on the side of those and, and curling them and just finding anything I can. And it took a lot of creativity because um, for us that are really active with our physical beings and, and trying to get that whole thing going, it's, it's not only um, an addiction, but it's therapy. So to keep that going, it's important. It's important for people to uh, continue that on because it helps with our mentality. It helps with our emotions. It helps keep everything in check with COVID-19 and everything else going on in this crazy world. We have to keep our sanity and there's a balance in that. You can't, you can't just do one workout or eat one meal and think it's, it's okay. You gotta have a, min, a maintenance every day. And so every day I'm doing something I just got done with an hour working out just a while ago, so I'm a little amped up, but I'm happy to be here and I appreciate everybody being on this panel right now and being on this interview, so thank you. And I'm also a fitness person. I love working out and um, it has been challenging for having, you know, different, maybe if you're a gym person, having that closed, but finding ways like all of you have done, including just using your body weight or taking a walk or um, just getting encouragement online has been really inspiring by all three of you. And I want to thank you all for um, joining us today. And as gyms are starting to open, there's going to be some COVID-19 precautions as well. And with our Native community with different um, health uh, illnesses that our communities face here in New Mexico and across the country. Um, Justin, what, what are some final encouragement, encouraging words to the Native community as um, we're in, you know, coming out of these stay-at-home orders here in New Mexico. Yeah, well, I want to sort of maybe underline Lauren's comment about exercising and staying active as therapy. And, you know, sometimes that word kind of can, it can throw people off. You think of, is there something wrong with me that I need therapy? But really it is, there's a lot of chemical things that go on inside the brain and the body that happens when you work out. And so you really get a natural high. You really do feel better. And, and I can feel it immediately. If, I'm, if I just sit around a couple of days and eat, a, and eat not very well, um, I just lose motivation. I feel uh, sluggish. And so you have to stay on it. And I, I guarantee you, if you work out, if you stay active, whatever that may be, you will feel better. You will feel energy. You will feel um, emotionally better about yourself, but physically you will feel an energy a high. And so I dare you 
to go out and work out and see if in fact uh, you do feel that. And once you start to get into a groove, um, you experience that. So I encourage everyone to just do something uh, for sure physically, but I also wanna underline the importance of the eating side of this. So you can, you can work out all day sometimes, but if your diet doesn't match the workout side, uh, if your goal is strength or losing weight or other things, uh, it's going to be a very long journey. So it can't just be a one-sided coin of working out extensively and then going back and having a bunch of, uh, you know, saturated fats, etc. So uh, I encourage everyone, keep it up. And I love that Indian country all over continues to encourage each other. Don't knock each other down, lift each other up. And when you see somebody working out, doing whatever, encourage them. Um, that is, to me, the best thing is seeing Indian country support each other at this time. Well, and thank you all for joining and talking a little bit about fitness journey and also healthy lifestyles. And also thank all three of you for the work that you've been doing for the Native community during COVID-19, whether that's giving out supplies or online encouragement. Thank you all. That's almost the end for this week's show of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. do want to remind you that we are partnering with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter to bring you our podcast, Your NM Government. Uh, there'll be a lot there next week on the legislative legislature special session, but they've also been doing a terrific job covering all kinds of stories about Black, Live, Black Lives Matter and the protests here in Albuquerque and across the state and the push for change, criminal justice reform, police reform. And uh, there's just a lot of great information, a lot of great interviews, um, lots of really fascinating stories about people's personal experience with all of this. It is Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are when those come out. And you can also hear them on KUNM at 7 p.m., but again, it's a podcast, so you can find that wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Spotify, and more. Encourage you to do that. Check that out. Uh, listen back to some of the past episodes and be looking out for more of that next week. We'll catch up with executive producer Marisa DeMarco and host Khalil Ecolona next Tuesday morning as well to find out some more specifics about next week. But we hope you have a terrific weekend. I'm going to end this week with some final thoughts from Gene Grant, especially around the Black Lives Matter protests and the Black Lives Matter movement here in New Mexico. If there was one story that really grabbed me this week and had to be that Washington Post piece with the headline, how the Black Lives Matter movement went mainstream. When you think about where the country was at when Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, which in essence kicked off the Black Lives Matter movement, so what we witnessed this week with major corporations now embracing the goal, the NFL commissioner apologizing for their stance in the kneeling controversy, NASCAR removing Confederate flags and a NASCAR driver flying some Black Lives Matter color on his car, Republican Senator Mitt Romney participating in the Black Lives Matter march, and a lot more than that. You have to say some things are starting to bubble to the surface and some change may be coming. More interesting still is the polling and where the public is at, not just on Black Lives Matter, but on the need for reform in policing, it's pretty much across the board politically. And so some change might be goosed along there as well. Hey, my thanks to the hardworking staff, the Daily Lobo for a terrific Facebook live session with me this week. 
You can find it in our feed at the Focus on New Mexico Facebook page. And while you're there, sign on so you won't miss anything. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. <laughs>